For the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina, I'm Lucille Sherman. This is the special 2020 elections edition of Domecast, the NC Insider and NNO Politics podcast. Every week until November 3rd, I'll be spotlighting a different North Carolina legislative or statewide race. Last week, we looked at House District 37 in Southern Wake County, and this week we're taking a close look at the governor's race, in particular the influence of the legislature on this race and the relationship between the governor and the legislature once he or she is elected. Here's my colleague Don Vaughn to talk about the race between Governor Roy Cooper and Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest for the battle over the governor's mansion. Don Vaughn, state politics reporter with the News and Observer, thanks for joining us. <laughs> In the last year or so, uh, North Carolina has seen a bit of a tug of war between the Republican-controlled legislature and Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. Between the budget stalemate last year and during this year's legislative session. So between both of those things, we've sort of really seen that in action. You cover both the legislature and the governor and the Council of State. Can you help me understand what kind of impact the legislature has on a governor? Well, really, they control what the governor can do, what kind of impact he or she can make, what kind of what kind of laws are, are going to be passed. So the governor can veto a bill, but if they have a super majority, they can override it and pass it no matter what the governor wants to do. There's no current super majority. So just having a regular majority, you would have to get a super majority of votes to, to override a veto. So the even with the legislature, both chambers being Republican controlled, they have not as much power as when it was basically a veto-proof majority. They can, you can do whatever you want. You don't need the you don't need the governor because you can override the governor. But when you don't have that, you have to get in the current scenario, Democrats. You have to get the opposing party to vote with you if you want to override the governor's veto. Now, if you're all the same party, then everybody gets to work together and but only on their particular party. So that in that way, the legislature and the governor can decide we're going to do this, and then they do that. And the people in the minority party, it's who cares? You, you don't have any control over this. So if your party is in control of both the the executive mansion and the legislature, both chambers, then you get what you want. When you have different parties, it's a struggle, which is what we saw with the budget stalemate last year. So really, they they are completely tied together. There are a few outside things, you know, executive orders. That's just something the governor does. But they really do have to work together as friends and adversaries, adversaries and frenemies and you know, that, that's just how our government is designed. So that's that's the fun part about government, too. Democrats broke the Republican supermajority in the legislature in 2018. So what happened last year? I know one of the hot topics of conversations last year and even trickling into this year has been the budget, the ongoing budget stalemate. Can you explain sort of the dynamics of that and what's been going on? Right. So there's a state budget every two years. So you're passing the biennium budget, biennial budget. So it really was for last year and this year. So when people talk about things like teacher raises, they're talking about like over two years. And you can make technical corrections and do some minor things on that off year. But every other year is like the big, big budget, the budget 
battle, really. So the governor puts out early in the year what he or she wants to happen. So Cooper said, this is what I would like. And then the House and Senate, I believe they take turns introducing each um, chamber's budget. So even if with double um, party control of the chambers, that doesn't mean because you're in the same party that you get along. So some years, the battle might just be between the two chambers, not between the parties. So what happened last year, I honestly can't remember now if the House or the Senate went first, but they just had their own budget proposal. They know what the governor wants, but they're going to still going to do what they want to do. And then they negotiate out a conference budget, which is the final budget that the House and the Senate agree to. And then once they pass that, they send to the governor. So that's basically like how the how the process works. And if the governor signs it, then we have a budget and all these things are funded, all these programs, people get raises, state employee raises is a huge thing that we cover all the time because of those thousands of people that want to know how much money they're getting. So the, the big topic at the heart of all of it last year was Medicaid expansion. North Carolina has not expanded Medicaid. Cooper wants it. Democrats want it. Republicans said no. And it came down to where some in the House, like Representative Donnie Lambeth, a Forsyth Republican, was like, well, what if we have some sort of compromise where we could have Medicaid expansion, but with work requirements and other things? And even if that had come to a vote in the House, the Senate Republicans were like, yeah, we're not doing this. They don't want to do it. So Medicaid expansion was really the biggest topic, and that's a big party line topic. But teacher pay was also a huge topic and how much money teachers should get. And that fell along party lines. And a lot of the debate in the chambers was not just with the with each other, like senator versus senator, as far as what they thought, how much money teachers should make, but what what the Democrats would be thinking about, like, well, this is what Democratic Governor Cooper said, and this is what he wants. So this is also what I'm going to push for. And so they have to unify as a block to prevent an override. Of course, everybody knows that famous moment of the House override when not everybody was in the chamber. But with this kind of months of are they going to call the vote in the Senate? And a lot of that came out to, and even in just their arguments with each other on the floor about their allegiance to Cooper and and standing and doing what what Cooper wants. So that's why the legislature and the governor are are so tied and by party. I mean, party is really how you get the caucus is how you get anything done, I think, in the state legislature, which you don't see and maybe at the local government level, for example. We could probably talk for three years about Medicaid expansion, but I will say quickly here that interestingly, I think North Carolina is one of around a dozen states that has not passed Medicaid expansion Even red states like Oklahoma and Missouri, both places I've covered recently, have passed Medicaid expansion, and they're both red states. Moving on from that, let's talk more about education since that was sort of the secondary factor in the budget stalemate last year. We talked about teacher raises, but there's one other area that I've been hearing a lot often when Republicans and Democrats are debating education, and that's school choice. Can we talk more about what the differences are in how parties view school choice and what it is. So school choice is, I mean, really what it sounds like, you know, and it could mean anything from uh, private school vouchers, which is using public money to go, to go toward private school. And the supporters of school choice would say, you know, I don't like my current public school option. So I want to go to private school. You know, I'm a taxpayer. I want this money to follow my student and go to private school. Of course, the critics of that will say, well, private school is unregulated and they can be discriminatory and all these other things. 
And then with charter schools, which are public schools, but they don't have the oversight that traditional public schools have. So that is a clear amount where the money follows the student. So that's also tied into choice. And it really is about letting families and students have, uh, it's, it's typically a Republican issue, I feel like, of school choice, but there are a lot of Democrats that, that follow it. And I think a lot of it could be your own particular experience in your school district, because I remember I covered Durham for a really long time. And, and I remember when charter schools started popping up there and people weren't happy with the traditional um, Durham public school system, but there were all these charter schools that were you know publicly funded, but a, a different format. Again, they don't have things like free and reduced lunch and busing. They can, but they're not required to. And so people thought, well, this is an opportunity for my child to get a be- better education that's still a public school. So there are a lot of longtime supporters of that still. The private school vouchers is an issue that I remember came up a lot with the Moral Mondays when Reverend Barber was doing those, however many years ago that was now, where all these protests at the legislature before the teacher marches. And then, of course, it was also an issue during the teacher marches of taking public education money and giving it to private schools. And then among other issues where there was um, extra pay for teachers who had master's degrees and that was that was taken away. So that's not a, a school choice factor, but that's just kind of one of those other things on the list that the educators and supporters of traditional public education were upset about. They want that master's pay there. They don't like these vouchers. They want all the money to stay and the public school system, because if you want the schools to be better, then then fund them more. Don't take that money to another school. So it's it's an argument, a discussion that's not going to go anywhere or go away anytime soon, whether or not people are, are parents or not. It's just a matter of how, what do you think the role of government is in, in education? Yeah. So how does this topic, education, how has that played into the governor's race as much as they can possibly talk about it with coronavirus? Right, right. So yeah, everybody knows who Cooper is because he's already the the governor and, and Dan Forrest, his Republican opponent, is lieutenant governor, which is a much lower profile job. And in North Carolina, it is also one that doesn't have a whole lot of power. You sit on a variety of boards, including the State Board of Education, but you don't you don't really have much power. Sometimes it's a stepping stone to the governor's mansion. A lot of times it's not, you know, and when we had, I want to say 17 candidates in the primary for lieutenant governor, I interviewed former lieutenant governors, including like Purdue, who became governor just about it. And they said that you can really make it what you want. You can have like your own particular issue. And one of Forrest's issues has been education um, and school choice. So the reason this plays so big in the current race is that people who like Forrest's policy perspective on on school choice, he's talked about, I don't think there's not a whole lot of people who are against broadband. Obviously, with coronavirus, we've learned how much we need that, really. But he is a big proponent of school choice. So so those that have already been aware of him from that time period, the past couple of years, will will continue to get will continue to support him and want him as governor, where Cooper very clearly more aligned with 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 just public school funding and not and not vouchers. Yeah, I'll take this moment to mention that Roy Cooper came to the governor's office from the attorney general's office. So he comes from a different background mm-hmm. than Forrest is coming from in this race. So Cooper has been around a long time. Of course, he was in the legislature too. Um, and Forrest wasn't, he was an architect, but this was his second term. So again, what I was saying is you can kind of, 
Lieutenant Governor role can be is, you know, you've got to kind of draw the spotlight to yourself um, or to a certain issue, but he doesn't have the the decades, I guess, of inroads with all the other lawmakers that he does in these past few years, because you do preside over the Senate as lieutenant governor, although Forrest hasn't done that a huge amount. I haven't seen him very much as we all think of Berger, you know, Senate leader Phil Berger as being the one with the with the gavel, because it's usually him that, that I've seen the past two years anyway. So let's jump to this year. In the last few months, we've seen the legislature during their short session, which kicked off at the end of April. They've dealt a lot with coronavirus legislation. One of those pieces of legislation that we saw over and over again, probably half a dozen times, were reopening bills. And that's where the governor's power came up a lot. Can can we talk about sort of what that looked like this year and how the legislature this year <laughs> dealt a lot with debating the governor's powers? So their role, I mean, if you have a Democratic governor and you're the other party, then then part of your role, aside that aside from that initial few months of, you know, we're all this, we're all in this together and let's support everybody and see what we can do to come out of this pandemic, you know, which obviously we haven't come out of yet. But eventually you're the party of of opposition and people didn't like how slow Cooper was or has been still on reopening. So part of it is both as the Republican Party and, as, and also at the national level that they are the party of restarting the economy, of opening everything up again. So these reopening bills were everything from where they're like, how can a brewery, open, brewery be open but not a bar? And so there's a bar reopening bill and then a gym reopening bill and amusement park reopening bill. One about like parades and fireworks for the 4th of July were, were not even part of an executive order unless you counted on the gatherings. And, and it was like everything where we think that you're not letting us do something or the business community really that, that we want this reopening bill. And, and as you'll recall, Lucille, because, you know, you were there for those arguments too on the, on the chamber floors is there are businesses that are, it's a, it's a bad scene, you know, economically for a lot of businesses, a lot of employees or former employees, people who are unemployed. And the idea of a business being closed and you not having a way to make a living is, is very stressful. So they're, they're both advocating for their constituents um, and obviously wanting to do the best they can for the economy. And, and in all those bills, they would say, like, we can have restrictions, you know, but a lot of them, they would also have a little extra thing in there because this is still politics, you know, where you mentioned Council of State at the beginning for people that don't know what that is. It's this phrase that seems kind of weird, but it's the governor, lieutenant governor, the attorney general, the agriculture commissioner, the labor commissioner. There's, there's, you know, there's a bunch of them on it. But according to, or at least so this lawsuit that didn't make it recently, if you, d depending on your reading of the general statutes, the governor has to get concurrence from the rest of the Council of State for a few things, but most of the stuff he doesn't he or she, you know, he, Cooper right now. And so uh, in some of these bills, it had, and can, you have to get concurrence from the Council of State, you know, or this sort of thing. But the interesting thing, I thought, and I did a story this summer, looking at those, examining those journal statutes and when they were written and how they came about into this, you know, current current reading of 166A, you know, which uh, I, I know more about than any other statute, I think, other than maybe public records. But the point of the lawsuit and of looking at it now is that we are in unprecedented times. There hasn't been an emergency situation that's lasted this long. So having scrutiny of it is a good thing. You know, we all want to 
pay attention to what the government's doing and thinking about like turning directions when you need to. So that's what that's what this has done is looking at like, hey, this is a new scenario and, and what do we do here? So that's what the Republicans did, partly because they don't like what the Democratic governor was doing. So they threw that in there, but it was also a way of examining this is how we govern because the General Assembly can change the general statute. So that was in a lot of those bills too. So it was a lot of procedural stuff, not just let's reopen this bowling alley, which they didn't get to do because Cooper vetoed them all. And the Council of State is a Republican majority. So if the General Assembly had passed any provisions where it required concurrence from the Council of State, it's likely that Cooper wouldn't have been able to use an executive order to do some of the things he wanted to do, like close down businesses. Right. It's all about, you know, politics when it comes down to it. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, again, like once you pass a law, then you, what's going to happen, you know, next time when like whoever's in power changed. And then, of course, if they had passed a bill about who's in charge of the Council of State, guess who gets to veto it, you know, <laughs> or sign it. So anyway, those are some of the things that have been at play this summer that I don't think are quite on on the radar as, as the more obvious things amid coronavirus. Yeah. And in the last few weeks of session, although it felt like the whole session, it really was the governor came up so often in debates on the floor. I looked through some of my notes before this conversation and just searched the word governor. And I could not tell you how many hits I got because the governor's power was the focus of so many bills that went through the legislature since session was largely focused on coronavirus. And it was a lot of sending bills to the governor because the legislature has a Republican majority still. Bills would pass and then get vetoed by Governor Cooper and sent back to the legislature. And because Republicans don't have a supermajority, they would fail or they wouldn't even try and override bills. So it felt like felt like deja vu a lot in those last few weeks. I mean, and they knew they knew what was gonna happen too. So it's also it's it's you know you have a goal of what you're trying to do but also you know what the reality is and you want everybody to know that you were trying to do this and i can't remember the exact quote from lieutenant governor forrest when he dropped the lawsuit when it didn't go the judge's ruling didn't go in his favor over the council of state executive orders but he said something to the effect of like i've done my part you know and you guys can vote and and i think that's a lot of what these other bills were was you know they've done their part they've they've tried for all each of these businesses that were restricted by the different phased plans and they've they've tried so they can say that so they can go to potential voters now you know since we're so close to the election and say hey you know, I sponsored this legislation or I voted for this legislation. I tried to get this for you and it just didn't happen. Are there any other ways that the General Assembly has influenced this governor's race in particular this year? I would say, again, it's the the control and what you want for for a party. So if this blue wave, if that actually happens or not. So if people have decided they want their state government, you know, all all Democrat and vote along the, the whole ballot, you know, straight ticket with Cooper, then there would be influence there. It might be more of the reverse way. You know, I like what Cooper's done, you know, potential voters saying that. And so I'm just going to go along with the other Democrats. So, you know, his next term can be what he wants or they don't like what he's done. 
And so they'll say like, well, I like my, you know, local Democrat um, who represents me now, but I'm going to go for Forrest because I don't like what Cooper did. Or I like school choice and Forrest has that or vice versa. Maybe you like your local Republican representative, but you think Cooper's done a decent job. So you vote for him. It's, it's kind of North Carolina is, is really interesting in that way. The fact that it went for both Trump and Cooper last election. I mean, it was a very, very close. Cooper barely beat McCrory. But they went for a Republican president and a Democrat governor. One more note on the coronavirus latest legislation topic is that one of the earlier reopening bills I was covering, it was either reopening gyms or reopening bars and gyms (laughs) or maybe just bars. So the Senate debated the bill on the floor and passed it. I think only five Democrats voted against the bill. And then what I found really interesting is Governor Cooper held a press conference in the middle of the day, right before the House was about to take up the bill on the floor. And Cooper mostly denounced, I would say, or didn't express his favor for these particular reopening bills. And so Democrats in the House completely shifted the narrative. Democrats in the Senate before Cooper spoke about this bill were saying that this was largely a good bill and, okay, we'll support it. But then when it hit the House, Democrats remained strictly loyal to Governor Cooper and what he was saying. And I thought that was such an interesting display of the dynamics between the legislature and the governor in that he said something and everybody sort of fell in line for the most part. Yeah. I mean, they do communicate with each other and they'll have to think like, you know, if he's going to sign this or he, if he's going to let this become a law or if he's going to veto this, you know, what do I need to say on the floor? You know, what do my constituents need to hear from me or not? What can I get through? And the other thing is, you know, Democratic House Minority Leader Darren Jackson will say, like, there are some things that are caucus issues where everyone in the caucus has decided this is how we're going to vote. And then other ones, it's you make your own call. And so sometimes it's that. But when everybody decides they're together, you you know, it's politically wise to vote with the rest of your party with what you guys decide, because otherwise the few of you that don't, all the reporters chase you down the hall and say like, well, tell us more about that. That's true. You've been warned. (laughs) How has the coronavirus helped or hurt Cooper and or Forrest? We've seen Cooper sort of on our TV screens and on the radio a lot of days of the week. Not so much with Forrest. Do you think it's benefited Cooper in any way or hurt Forrest in any way? I think part of the thing with with Forrest going out in public for these campaign events is his way of getting out there at a time where, you know, Cooper has a captive audience. He gets to, and I, you know, I talked to this NC Central University professor in Durham about this, where, you know, he he can show like, this is my role as governor. This is what I'm doing to keep us safe. This is what I'm doing to, you know, help this or that or whatever. And he has, you know, the camera for the press conferences. He has all of us asking him questions and writing stories about it. 
so he already had he's already getting the word out and he's the incumbent the incumbent is always you know it's the home field advantage really like in football where you you know everybody already sees you is familiar with you you have this opportunity where they're watching watching this play out so the other person has to take a, a different tactic and kind of what we were saying earlier with the reopening from a from a party standpoint as a republican forest it needs to say like i'm for reopening the you know the economy and, and doing all these things that you know he has this video that the rga put out with what he wants to do for business and that sort of thing in north carolina so that's what that's what he's got to do he's got to show people why they should vote for him instead of you know the the other guy that they're already seeing you know on on tv every week or more than once a week even and dan forrest has held in-person campaign events in the last few weeks, right? Right. So that's also a significant difference in those races, but I'm sure he's sort of trying to make up for lost ground in not having as much face time with the state as Cooper has in the last few months. Yeah, Forrest spends a lot of time and, you know, and he always says that, like, I've been traveling the state and and he, you know, the Council of State meetings that are held every month when each, usually they each get a few minutes to talk and Forrest will say, well, I'm traveling the state and doing this and that. And and that in-person contact is what, um, obviously, it's what his campaign tactic is to, to reach out to voters in that way. And also he has just has a different view on distancing and mask wearing and such compared to Cooper, clearly. Is there anything else you think voters need to know about the governor's race heading into the election? You know, part of me thinks that from covering it, kind of one of the frustrating things is wondering, and, and maybe presidential race reporters have this too, you know, is it already decided? Like, is there a twist and turn, like, like you know, like your average year? And um, and I think that, I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, when this year started, I didn't think like, oh, covering the governor's race would be about a pandemic. You know, I thought it would be about... What we already talked about, Medicaid expansion, really, you know, we thought we could maybe be a, a big, a much bigger issue. and But it's a, a different type of health issue that we ended up talking about. And education, you know, like I was saying, it's evergreen topic, ne- never going anywhere. So I think people have other, you know, maybe more minor issues that um, that they care more about with the governor's race. But I think those are, you know, some of the really big really big factors. And then, of course, you know, Trump versus Biden is going to have a make a really big difference on who who people vote for for governor and everything else, assuming that we all vote. All right. Thanks, Don Vaughn, state politics reporter with the News and Observer. If you want to keep a close eye on the governor's race, she's the person to follow on Twitter and beyond. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Lucia. In other elections news, the News and Observer launched its voter guide last week. You can go to newsobserver.com to read about each of the candidates running in your local, state, and beyond races. And you'll also get to see our candidate questionnaires for most of the candidates. Also worth noting, Dawn wrote about Governor Cooper's administration's response to coronavirus, which I hope you'll make time to check out on our site at newsandserver.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next Monday.